listening to the Games Industry Doppler's podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by Matt Handrahan, Brendan Sinclair, and Marie D'Alessandri. We're going to be talking about the biggest stories from the past week, starting with blockchain games. Now, we're not speaking about a particular news story, a particular incident. We're talking about um, kind of our thoughts on and our stance on this emerging technology and uh, a piece that Brendan wrote brilliantly uh, about a week ago, why we are not going to be running any pitches on this technology for now. Brendan, since you kind of wrote this and kind of led the piece, we all kind of read through it and just like, yes, yes, I agree. But you kind of want to talk us through like why, why it is, the simpler reasons why we are not indulging this at the moment. Sure. Um, I, th- I think the, the big reason that, that kind of I wanted to write that piece and and wanted us to sort of get this out there in public uh, about our editorial decision making is because it really seems to me like we are on uh, a a precipice here or nearing an inflection point of uh, blockchain tech and specifically non-fungible tokens, NFTs in games taking off and, you know, just achieving legitimacy and profitability. Um, and that's from things like the NBA Top Shot is their their NFT product, which has been doing well, generating all kinds of headlines and other, other sports leagues are looking at it very closely. Um, Kings of Leon released their newest album as an NFT promotion. Uh, Jason Rohr started selling nfts of his uh tied to art assets from one of his old games uh and and then people are even like selling nfts of individual tweets so now you can own the tweet of whatever you want supposedly like you own a concept pointing to that tweet um and and the thing is with this traction we've been getting a lot more pitches about blockchain uh, tech and games. We we started getting them a few years ago, and we covered them. And then they dried up for a little bit, uh, when just sort of the heat around blockchain and Bitcoin uh, seemed seemed to be losing momentum. But it's it's back now. And we're getting a lot more pitches, especially for NFT treatments in games. And the the thing is, they they all kind of read the same way, all, all the, the things being proposed are just basically creating a way for people to, you know, speculate, a, a way for people to buy something that's a collectible that they then sell later on and get rich off of. Like that's sort of the underlying premise of uh, basically every every blockchain pitch that that we've seen. And most of them have been talking about like, oh, we're going to create this marketplace for NFTs that will, you know, take ownership outside of the game so that you'll actually own that plus three dragon sword or, or whatever it is. And like that is, it's a fiction, right? It's, it's, you don't own that dragon sword no matter how it works because, you know, it's dependent on this game to to actually keep running and keep recognizing this dragon sword as an item and like you can already trade items in games you can already sell things maybe not through approved channels 
but you can already cash out your in-game items in, in you know, just a wide variety of online games anyways. Um, so the, the NFT thing is, is promising to kind of like take some of the, the publisher control out of in-game items and all that, but it's eh, functionally, it's, it's not really doing that. If they nerf your plus three dragon sword, they're still nerfing it. It's, you know, it's an illusion of ownership. Um, but that's that specific treatment and beyond these treatments, like I may think that these treatments are dumb, but I've covered lots of stuff for this site that I think is dumb. It's, it's not really, it's not really my, um, my place to say whether or not something will succeed or fail because I'm not really good at that necessarily. You know, I bought a Dreamcast. I bought a Vita, as I'm required to mention in every single episode of this podcast. <laughs> uh, so, so that's not my specialty, and I recognize that I'm going to be wrong about stuff. So I'll, I'll cover it regardless. But in this case, in blockchain's case, the downsides to to cryptocurrency, to blockchain technology, to these technologies as they're currently implemented, is is uh, significant and and growing the the electricity consumption of of bitcoin on its own is is already like best guesses by you know people that aren't necessarily in the bag for it or working to undermine it uh is is that bitcoin already uses as much electricity every year as argentina like <laughs> every computer every appliance everything that uses electricity in a country of 45 million people and all of that is propping up like what's it actually being used for it's being used for a whole bunch of computers that are doing proof of work uh equations that are guessing numbers and the numbers are like you know you guess the right number you win a lottery you get your you can you know mine the next bitcoin you get your currency um and they don't they don't produce anything other than that other than like guessing the right number for the currency and then verifying that this you know individual bitcoin is working as uh verifying the the ledger that 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 tracks uh the the exchange of it and and that that ledger is supposed to give people added confidence in the you know um in the security and the transparency of the currency and the reliability of it. But it's using an incredible amount of electricity to do that. And they have said that, uh, like with Ethereum, a uh, different cryptocurrency, uh, that a lot of these NFTs are, are based on, um, they, they want to change that to proof of, they want to change it from proof of work to proof of stake, which is a much less energy intensive thing. Uh, but they've been promising that for years. Um, and they've, they've started to roll out a change to the Ethereum model that will transfer it to proof of stake, but they don't expect to actually have that finalized until they've just said 2022 in general. And that is a long time to wait. And, and with the, the speed at which this market is moving, if we wait until the end of 2022, then uh, all of these efforts might be so entrenched and so profitable that 
people looking to push back on them will will be that much better funded that much uh, they'll find it that much harder to walk away from from something that they've already put you know so much of their money into uh, that they already rely on so much of their income from that, uh, if there are any, any issues that come up, any hitches with this switch to proof of stake, if switching to proof of stake changes the dynamics of, of the market in such a way that it, it, it isn't the, you know, attractive speculative vehicle that it is right now for a lot of people, uh, what do you do then? You know, it's, it's, it's like if we had, if we had gone back in time to 2007 and started, you know, if, if legislators were on top of loot boxes at the time and, and worrying about this stuff, uh, if, if so many games media sites had come out against them and EA looked at that and they said, okay, well, we were thinking about doing this for FIFA ultimate team, but do we really, do we really want to like push into that headwind right now? I don't know if they would have, but, Right now, you know, 14 years down the line with with ultimate team modes making up a quarter of FIFA, uh, sorry, a quarter of Electronic Arts entire revenue for the year, like we can we can scream until we're blue in the face about loot boxes and gambling and how awful that is. And it's not going to make a difference. I mean, we've 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 seen the way that that EA has has resisted any attempt to, to change or improve the, the, the loot box mechanics in FIFA Ultimate Team. And that's with so many uh, countries and uh, legislatures uh, threatening to, to impose restrictions on it. So like if, if there's going to be pushback against uh, blockchain and NFT use in games, it really has to come now and it has to be vocal uh, because if we wait until it's already making a lot of money, it's it's not going to do anything. It's a good comparison as well, comparing it to loot boxes, because my understanding is that ultimately that's what some of these NFTs or blockchain-based um, mechanics are. Like um, I, I swear I read that NBA Top Shots, when you buy a Top Shot, you are buying a ch- like just a randomized clip. You're not buying a specific video. You're buying like a you know like a pack of cards. You know they would argue is you're buying a random, so you don't know which video you're going to own. Um, so these are basically these are just another loot box in 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 some of the ways they're being executed. They are just <laughs> another another loot box. Um, I d- even worse than than loot boxes to to some degree because the fact that you're owning a unique thing uh, with NFTs makes it like if, like people will chase it mm. even more. So when when you put that in the context of a pay to win situation, having people like chase something that's extremely rare and extremely expensive it's just like the worst possible evolution of loot boxes in my opinion Which it, sorry james i no, didn't no, really no. mean to interrupt no i agree but- I, I agree and it kind of it kind of makes sense when you see people like using the nfts for art like you know like okay right you've got this one digital art asset like it's kind of like a digital my understanding is it's kind of like a digital equivalent of art selling like right this is the one and only digital painting that this you are the only person who owns this any others are a forgery any of this kind of any of that kind of not art trading kind of terminology um but with top shots again you're yes you own a video 
but you own that exact copy of that video because these videos, I, th- I read a great piece on uh, Kotaku where they proved that, like I think they were referring to like one of the, the top shots that sold for the most amount of money between um, usual, between collectors and the exact same clip they were able to embed from YouTube on this website for free. And it, I don't understand. It, it is very much the epitome of like, there's only value in there because certain people believe there are value in there, but there yeah. is, yeah. Which, which I grant you is, is true of all economics. No, but it's fundamentally different. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's difficult to even talk about this stuff without going into like weird, like postmodernist philosophy and stuff, <laughs> which is just just the role, the role and value of art in an age of infinite reproduction. Like that's the reason why digital artists have had like a really hard time proving the value of their work is because everything digital can just be infinitely reproduced like there's no specific way of defining the value of a piece of digital art right like because it it's not like the mona lisa there is one it's right there it's different i mean one thing that's happened recently i think a piece of digital art from an artist sold for about 70 million dollars this is kind of what what a what a uh what a Cezanne painting would go for, like an actual Cezanne painting would go for. So, and, and it's been made possible by these techniques. When you go to NBA, I mean, but the thing is, but when you see that piece of art, it's actually really impressive. Um, and it's by a legitimate artist and so on. Like NBA top shots, it just, <laughs> it, it just goes <laughs> to a different place for me. Like buying a unique video clip that presumably you could, just watch on youtube even if it isn't the original anyway like you just get into a very weird hazy place and as you say batch it's almost like it's almost like every you know everybody has to buy into the same consensual hallucination for all of this to make any sense whatsoever anyway and while i do feel like i've just pulled up the example it's a digital artist called beeple sold a piece of art uh, let me find the title here. Every day is the first 5,000 days. So for $69 million at Christie's. Um, that happened last week, I think, or a week before last. So like th- this stuff is moving in, I think, quite unprecedented directions. I don't think we've seen any examples in the games industry of anything particularly um, fascinating in the way that that is fascinating. It really does feel just like more and more kind of reckless commodification of literally everything that can be commodified from like a tweet to a video clip of a basketball player to in Jason Rohrer's case and and you know Jason Rohrer took a lot of flack for that but at the very least he is selling things that were literally created to be art rather than just kind of a randomized piece of pop culture or whatever and the thing with the the people auction and most of these stories of like oh my gosh someone made a fortune uh, doing this <clears throat> is is that the people who are going to pay sixty nine million dollars for an NFT right now? They are people that are uh, sold on this whole NFT, you know, blockchain kind of thing. They almost certainly have investments in NFT blockchain kind of things, and they uh, benefit directly from what Matt was calling that, that, you know, mass hallucination of value around these things. So there, it's a bet for them, uh, that by putting, you know, this much money behind something, uh, they're, they're making, that's making headlines. That's telling people like, look, you can make all kinds of money in NFTs and blockchain and stuff. 
And then that's going to draw in more people into NFTs and blockchains, which will drive prices higher, uh, which will, you know, like kind of self-fulfilling prophecy sort of thing. And the whole thing, it winds up looking like a pyramid scheme eventually when, Mm. you you know, (laughs) when people start to cash out and other people start to realize, wait, what what do I have here? I don't, I don't actually own anything of any kind of arguable inherent value here. It's just based on perceptions. And then as soon as perceptions change, it's, it's, you know, gone by the wayside. Uh, and, and, like, I didn't even want to talk about the number of scams in, in blockchain NFT kind of stuff in, in the in the article. Um, because it's as as gross as a lot of that stuff is, like, I, I don't think it actually changes the the basic argument here that, like, even if all of this stuff was completely legit and above board, um, the the benefit that it gives which is here's another way to gamble your money, um, which we already have plenty of in this world, uh, is is not worth the the drawbacks of this obscene uh, energy usage. And and the the reactions to this uh, article, um, I thought were interesting. Most of the people within the video game industry were were positive about it, um, more so than I expected. Even among like the entrepreneurial you know, startup set. Uh, but the, the ones that weren't and the ones from the blockchain, you know, ecosystem as a whole, those true believers that, that responded to this, uh, they were, they were very much like, uh, Oh, well here's, you know, a fear, uncertainty and doubt campaign. This is very misleading. Um, and, and Hmm. no actual like specific, arguments as to what was wrong or what was misleading or no details on anything like that. And I understand the response that you get on Twitter is not really um, well suited to nuance. And and there may have been something in there that I misunderstood. Um, I tried my best to make sure that wasn't the case. But I, I do think that it's that it's telling that when it's not, you know, I, I tried my best to limit it the the argument in the in the article to just you know it uses way too much energy for for what it's worth and uh it doesn't contribute anything really um and and it was either you know people just saying it's a misunderstanding uh that i've you know completely missed the case here or just you know attacking the hypocrisy of you know someone that writes for a website about video games a website i probably composed the editorial on a computer and and have a phone and you know participate in society um and all of that makes me a horrible hypocrite for not wanting uh, anything to do with blockchain yeah so that's just a tremendously intellectually dishonest criticism though isn't it i mean and the 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 thing with being writing for us i mean we're putatively a, a business website right and i think some people take uh, being on a business-focused website to mean that you love money and like that, that the ability for something to make money is what legitimizes it. And that's actually not the case. As Brendan said at the start, you know, our position on loot boxes has always been one of, of kind of sincere and honest criticism where where it's appropriate. And we've taken that stance on many things that, 
they're bringing a lot of revenue for a lot of different people. It's it's not the same, and I do feel the people that that kind of throw out these accusations of misleading and so on are just the people that really are excited by the capacity of you know of a of a place to. Where, where they can invest some money and, and take more out and that's actually all they really need to see. Um, there's actually some common ground here I feel between what happened with the GameStop stock and and what's happening here with NFTs because I mean obviously we're well beyond the, the point in time where every kind of scrap of money on the face of the earth was backed up by the gold standard or so it kind of had some root in some true physical value like that's not the case anymore obviously but you, you get with with the GameStop story as as in here you're you're seeing this weird like bizarro economy playing out where things where the value of things is so completely distorted from any reality so in in terms of an NFT you have you know the, these kind of pieces of digital like people spending vast sums of money for what is effect and the only thing they actually really get for it truly get for it is a certificate of ownership rather than the actual thing that they own because that's that's the one thing that they they actually do get that they can hold in their hands that actually can't be replicated very very easily you know um and with gamestop you had what was a failing business one in a in a, in a period of steady and slow decline had the kind of rush on stock that you rarely see more than more than once or twice in a decade on 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 wall street and none of these things have any rooting in reality really what they are is the exploitation of systems and the thing is i don't get excited by what happened with gamestop stock i don't want to buy gamestop stock it actually unsettles me because it, what it does is it magnifies the ways in which the system is broken and the ways in which it's unfair and doesn't represent anything kind of really meaningful and the fact that you can exploit it doesn't mean you've hit upon something good it really just means that you're highlighting the ways in which it's bad and the ways in which it needs reform and I just get and again I, I don't can't claim to be an expert on NFTs or blockchain or anything like this but the the best I can ever say about any pitch we've ever had for blockchain is that it's always seemed fanciful and at worst if it seems like a ripoff so to use that dragon sword example that the Brennan was talking about. I mean, these are probably some of the earliest pitches we got about blockchain tech in, in games. You know, you can you can own this sword and you can take it from this game to a different game by a different publisher and use it. And that was kind of what was supposed to get us excited. But my immediate response to that is like the, the amount of collusion between different competing companies that has to take place for that to ever happen is mind-boggling. And so why on earth would we ever get to a place where a sword you can use in you know, the Witcher can be used in Dragon Age. It's never going to happen. At least it doesn't seem very likely it ever will. And yet the majority of the value attached to, to the cost of that item is based on that promise. And it is at best a promise made on shaky ground. And that's divorced entirely from the whole energy consumption thing, which just makes it a home run for me that, that this is not something to kind of throw editorial weight behind. And the people that are really, really excited about it are actually mainly just really excited about money. They're the people who cash out of a company, could live, could not work a day for the rest of their lives and just think about how can I turn this enormous pile of money into an even more enormous pile of money. Um, yeah. To continue with the Dragon Sword example, like, yeah, you're right, the amount of collusion that would be needed between different companies, the, that is just never going to happen. But I have been thinking recently, like, what if it could happen between games by the same company? But even then, I don't think there's any incentive for that to happen. So say you've got, 
this proper upgraded, really dangerous um, hidden blade from an Assassin's Creed game. There's no way Ubisoft would let you instantly bring that into the next Assassin's Creed game because that debalances it. All right, it's a single player game, so you're only debalancing it for yourself. It denies them the opportunity to sell those XP boosts and time boosts and legendary gear and stuff. The whole point of all these game series is like, um, you always start from scratch. You've got to build up from the beginning. And yes, that can be frustration for, for players sometimes, like particularly if it's a, a direct sequel where your character was super powered by the end of it, and then you start the next one where you have none of that. But if you if you don't have that, then the game is the games are considerably shorter. People will complain. You would inevitably get the same people who take all their really valuable items from one game to the next, then complain that the next game is too easy, that they didn't get enough yeah. value out of their time for it. So, yeah, the notion that whole notion of like right, you can own these items. And to go back to something Brendan said earlier about like you know, even if you own those items, you are dependent on that game staying live. Yeah, okay, fine. If I had a, an NFT hidden blade, I don't think Assassin's Creed games are going to go go anywhere. But most of the ones we've seen so far are from kind of startups and, and indies and so forth. I was listening to a podcast recently where they said, well, you know, if the game that you've got the item for goes under, then someone else can just make a game that uses that item. Who's going to do that? Which company is going to think right? That company collapsed because the blockchain thing didn't work. Let's build our own blockchain game so that all the people who own, or the few people that own their blockchain items can use them again. It's not realistic. Yeah, and also I think, you know, and again, the, the problem with talking about this is it all sounds so completely ridiculous, doesn't it? Like why, there's no value to, you know, a, a digital dragon sword from any one game. It just isn't just draw, someone will just draw a new sword, you know? Like it doesn't, it doesn't exist. It's not, you know, but, but the, the thing is, like, if, if this kind of, if this, it's not the case necessarily that we'll never get to a point where these sorts of digital items are unique and are seen as unique and are verifiable as unique in a way that doesn't harm the planet. But it's going to, if that ever happens, it's going to be way, way bigger than video games. It's going to be a complete uh, new way of thinking about ownership in the digital era. It's going to be a new way of thinking about value and what, what individual creativity means when it's not using physical materials and so on and so forth. Like video games are what happens after that happens. They're not they're not gonna be the thing that drives it, I don't think. So all of the video game game examples, they kind of seem inherently ridiculous. And I think that's why, like say someone like Jason Rohrer, who, you know, bear in mind that Jason Rohrer has had like, you know, profiles in the New York Times because of you know, because he's like living off uh, humble means and, you know, he's a true artist in, in a way in, a, in the commercial world of video games. And he got a lot of pushback on his selling of um, uh, digital paintings from, from a, a game that he made. Uh, and these were all art contributed by different people. He commissioned each and every one. I don't think he paid for a lot or all of them. Some of them were made by family and friends, some of them not. But he was selling these and without permission from the original creator to make money. And I think that's kind of where... I, it, I think it's just very, very easy to criticise that because these... Again, it's worth looking up this, this piece of art by people. You can see there's something different about this piece of art versus a video game asset or, um, you know, a, a clip of an NBA player scoring a three from, from the baseline or what I don't, I don't watch basketball, so it might not make any sense. But you know what I mean. Like, there, there's a difference here and that there's a far bigger 
transition and change in play, if any of this is to ever make any sense for video games. And yet, I feel like there are plenty of people within the games industry, you know, in the entrepreneur set or wherever, who really feel like they can be the ones to like make this change felt across across the wider world. And it just doesn't it just doesn't translate. The thing is, it, it could make sense to some degree. Like that, there's some, like, some aspect of this that could be useful, useful ownership, etc. But like, there's going to be just an explosion of misuses before it actually finds its feet, or anything actually good comes out of it. And it's just going to start with all the things that are wrong about it. And maybe in a few years' time, when it's actually regulated in a proper way, we can see a useful creative use of of that sort of thing but at the moment it just doesn't make like honestly at its most basic sense it just makes no sense to me like i just can't wrap my head around this thing like i I just can't it's just it it's just something that's going to make the rich richer and everyone else is going to stay on the side of the road by the side of the road i don't know what the expression is but you get the idea and like it's just it's so ridiculous i just don't get it and there's so many game artists or just artists in general that are gonna suffer from this reality because someone is gonna like i was i saw a tweet today this morning about an environment artist at us two who tweeted to say that um they saw fan art of monument valley being sold as nft and uh, they were saying that it was like the worst insult because us two is a very environmental friendly developer like the newest game is um I think for every um, purchase of the game, they're planting a tree. I think that's correct. Uh, might be worth double checking that, but they're promoting planting trees essentially. And uh, they were saying that it was just awful to see someone else pr- pr- making profit from another IP for- of theirs on the back of like hurting the planet. Like it's just, and that's just one example of the misuse that can happen and you just you can just create anything set it sell it as an nft and not even worrying about the original vision of the game or the original ip or like i don't know there's so many things about this that are just fundamentally wrong to me uh, and i'm just like touching upon the surface here because like i'm too tired to be intellectual but it, it is just ah uh, that's another of those things that's just going to make me angry, but I just don't necessarily have the words to explain why it's making me angry. It's just ridiculous. I hate it. thing is, you're right. Potentially, yes, the technology could at some point in the future, if regulated properly, if handled properly, could be used for some beneficial purpose. Nobody knows what that is because everyone is is still caught up in this this get rich quick kind of mentality. Every pitch we ever see is about oh players can earn money. Um, all of the stuff that we've been talking about earlier is about collecting with the hope of of your thing that you own. I I say that in big you know Doctor Evil style quotation marks own um, is going to become more valuable. The attitude around it. I, I read this. There was an article I read over the weekend. Um, and there's a paragraph here I want to share with you guys. While, in, while industry incumbents profit from this robust growth of the games industry, uh, players generate little lasting value for themselves. After investing in these expensive consoles, PCs, or mobile games, uh, so mobile devices, traditional uh, players entering gaming environments that offer a, tier, a tiered access user experience. In these traditional games, money flows in one direction. Players must spend money to access in-game content and exclusive features. Yes, that's how entertainment <laughs> works. You buy a thing and it gives you the entertainment. You don't you don't get money back from it. I don't expect to make money out of reading a book or watching TV. So this 
this mentality of, right, I want a game and then I want an ability to make money out of the game by playing. It's very much the, the Simpsons and you should get prizes by watching. That kind of mentality. That is what feels inherently connected to blockchain. And I don't think we're going to get away from that. Thing is, though, like, uh, you know, that's the case. But, but as Brendan said, you know, that already happens. Um, and you know what? Like, I feel that if you really wanted to make money from owning a digital item, like in video games, you probably are better off just having a really rare, you know, weapon skin in Counter-Strike than you are having an NFT right now, because yeah. there'd be a bigger market for it. The, the value of it is much easier to communicate. People, I was writing about Habo recently, it used to be Habo Hotel, um, which has gone through some serious problems and has just changed ownership and, and some people were cashing out of the game. And like it boggles the mind, like the, the digital goods people were selling up and you can sell them on third party marketplaces. People were cashing out hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of stuff that they'd built up on Habo over the years. I mean, this stuff, it it's already exists. It's just not. It's just not supported by this new technologies. These new technologies that do incredible harm to the planet. At least a much greater deal of harm to the planet. But I mean, I, I think it's probably worth adding that, you know. And Brendan did point this out in in the piece. And maybe Brendan, you could elaborate a little bit more on this. But it's not like you'll never see the word NFT or blockchain on the website ever again. Um, I think it's a certain kind of pitch we're talking about here. The kind of you know, the excitable startup that, that thinks it's doing something super interesting with blockchain. That's the one that we're looking at askance. That's the one we're raising an eyebrow to. We write about loot boxes a lot, but you won't see us necessarily interviewing a company that has a great new concept for how loot boxes could be made more effective. There's, there's a difference in, in the kind of coverage we're willing to give. Well, I'm I'm looking at all of them askance, uh, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not I'm not limiting it to just the startups. But if uh, you know if Nintendo starts releasing NFTs for for you know Smash Brothers characters or something like that's it's horrible. It's awful news, but it's news. Um, so so I I think that there are and and if you know blockchain just changes the entire industry the way free-to-play did uh and we're still gamesindustry.biz and we're still a trade site covering the games industry we kind of would have to cover it i might not still be writing about the games industry if that happens um but like the site itself is you know it, it would be at that point doing a disservice uh to the people that you know actually just want to follow the the business of the industry to not cover it then if it's if it's ubiquitous um i i i thought this was more about uh voicing this reservation right now and and making like i i don't i don't have a whole lot of illusions about um our uh, about our ability to you know stand in the way of uh something that could be very profitable for a lot of people in the industry. Um, but I do, I do think the kind of the positive outcome, uh, might of something like this might be more just sort of giving permission to people in the industry, uh, to, to be openly against this. Like it is not, 
it is not a fringe position if you know one of the the few games industry trade sites that are out there uh, and one of the established ones is you know publicly taking a stance like this i i think that kind of um i my hope anyways is is that it moves the overton window about it a little bit to to make it okay to other people uh in the industry to say like no this is this is gross let's not do this um and some of the reaction that we got from people in the industry um that that was in support of the the article and us not covering this uh was from people that i that i would not necessarily have expected um to to take a public stand against this so yeah fingers crossed this week we saw an update from the Dying Light developers at Tackland. Uh, they have delayed the game, they're explaining why, but there was one part of their presentation that we kind of um, wanted to discuss. They, they included tweets from fans um, that were, let's put it politely, expressing how upset they were that this game had not arrived, was not being released, was being delayed, and so forth. And um, Brendan wrote a great kind of intro in this our This Week in Business column as to why this is maybe not the best way to handle that. Um, so again, I'm going to hand to you, Brendan, to kind of summarise your thoughts rather than, rather than speaking for you. Okay, so I really don't like this. I've seen it a whole lot. Um, so this is not just about Techland. It's just their promotional video that was the latest example of something that set me off. Um, it, I, I think it's fair to say that we've got a, a problem with video game fandom uh, in the last 15 years, maybe, and it's gotten uh, it's gotten bigger because we haven't really done much to course correct it. And uh, the problem is just that it gets hostile and abusive, and that's tolerated far too often. Um, so the the approach for the Dying Light Two team here was to try and make light of it, and and they film this video the entire point of the video is basically like we are releasing the game in 2021 and here's like a 10 second teaser clip of stuff from it um and to get that across they decided it was necessary to make this uh, a few minutes long and to have it start with people on presumably on the dying light 2 team reading mean tweets aimed at them about you know just a lot of vulgarities and ah, the, the game's never coming out there. They've just released it already. We're waiting too long for this and, and, and being really upset and kind of having that, uh, you know, that entitled point of view, um, that, that we've seen, uh, criticized for, for years and years in, in the games industry where, you know, not having an update on a game just means like for some of these people like yeah it's okay for me to to just swear at the developers and and say all kinds of nasty things about them uh and that's that's bunk that is not acceptable and we need to stop doing things like this that that give permission to it that specifically say uh we are proud of having such devoted fans as you no matter how you express your feelings because you shouldn't be 
proud of that. And those those are not devoted fans. Those those are people acting inappropriately to a game not having an update on it. Uh, and and to to kind of coddle them, and and to say like. Um, we're proud to have devoted fans like that. It, it not only kind of accepts that as a valid expression of your fandom, swearing at the developers and, uh, you know, sending abusive tweets at them. Um, but it also, uh, they, 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 they made light of it even. Um, it's, it's, it's not like they, you know, had a stand-up routine about it, but, you know, they, they downplay it comedically, you know, it's like, Hey, maybe you're even a little uh, impatient for news on the game and and there's there's sort of that that light comedic tone uh around it which is which is treating something that i that i think is legitimately harmful um as as like just another accepted valid expression of fandom it's like you know what we've got the most devoted fans they they do they write fanfic they do cosplay they send us death threats it's fantastic (laughs) this is exactly what we've been trying to cultivate for years and years and years it's yeah they love us and that's absurd they kill us for not doing our jobs quick enough it's weird as well because you'd have to think that uh that there must be at least some crossover. Well, they're different companies, right? And it's probably wrong to think of them as as, as as alike purely because they're based in the same country. But you can see from Cyberpunk 2077 that, that your devoted fans are not necessarily going to have your back when you do get a game out as quickly as you possibly can, right? Like that you can just as easily get death threats for releasing a game too soon. And like you do wonder, like if, 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 if Techland did release Dying Light <clears throat> to in a manner that would satisfy the people sending these kinds of threats and then that game was buggy whether those people would would be understanding and, and calm about it i suspect that a lot of the same people will be sending threats for that reason as well and and that's why it's not about passion and that's why it's not about fandom and that's why it's about toxicity and why you know i think it'd be easy to make to to kind of dismiss something like this but like i, I don't think it should be dismissed i think it yeah, it should be called out. It should be called out by the people receiving the threats. It's it's difficult to imagine how this kind of culture ever gets broken if the people receiving the threats can't even call them that, you know? Well, this I is... I was actually quite surprised. Go, Marie, go, go, go. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, I was just going to say that I was actually quite surprised this morning when I looked into, into this a bit more. Uh, I wanted to see the coverage that was uh, done on the video and barely any publications I've, I've read... Um, covering this actually mentioned how weird this whole thing was um, and I, I expected some some publications at least to point it out I might not have seen them to be fair I didn't check every single um, uh, games publication of course but barely anyone mentioned it and I don't understand how like it's, it's just really not okay essentially uh, normalizing that type of attitude um, and it, it's feeding the trolls to some degree as well because some of the people who will have their tweets being featured in that video I'm sure are going to take great pride in it and take it as like almost encouragement to do it again um, I, I would say that the only positive of that video is that it's showing that there's people behind the screen like Chris mentioned it on, on Slack this morning when we're talking about this and I think that is true that it's showing there's people behind the screen when you send a tweet but this only has value if you use it to push back against 
the abuse because it is still abuse there's no value in in displaying that abuse if you're not going to do anything with it or just like yeah make it a comedy act as as brendan mentioned so i just thought the whole thing was really weird normalizing like entitlement that some gamers feel towards studios and games and I just don't understand how you, you can see that and be like, oh, yeah, I'm, we're going to make a marketing video about it and we're going to call them devoted and telling, tell them that that type of tweet is what motivates us. I just, I feel bad for Techland. I really do. Like, it's tough. Like, I yeah, I don't know. Sorry, Brendan, go ahead. I know you wanted to add something. Yeah, I wanted to bring up what uh, Chris was saying, actually, and I, I, I wish you were here because he, um, I'll try and articulate his position uh, so uh, apologies if I'm not doing this correctly, Chris, but, uh, from what I understood, his position was, was that this was a game developer, um, looking to take something in stride and like yelling at your customer base is not going to, you know, endear them to you. Uh, so he, he was sort of, he was, he was treating it as like you mentioned, Maria, a way to, to humanize, uh, the developers, uh, but also just kind of a, a way to try and diffuse some of the the you know hostility that there might have been with humor, and like I understand why an individual developer might choose that uh, that that path, but it really does kind of come down to um, like on an individual level, developers choosing this comes down to sort of a a, a marketing and PR philosophy of like just stop yelling at us like we will we will say the nicest things about our fans we will just talk about how great they are endlessly whatever you guys want just stop yelling at us and i don't think that that is a um like like that might that might stop the yelling in the near term but i I think uh longer term that just creates uh, a whole lot of problems in your in your fandom and in in gaming culture uh, as as a whole, and you can kind of see the way that this the, the way that this works with uh, just about any company that really cultivates a dedicated rabid following. Um, because there was there was a time when, uh, like in the late two thousands, I want to guess mid to late two thousands, like there weren't that many companies like this there was bioware bungie and blizzard were the ones that i remembered as just having like wow this is they've got such loyal fans that really care about stuff and like they have all since then had these once they've built this this passionate loyal fan base and they inevitably um cross them for for you know whether it's a valid complaint or or not you know because you put diablo on mobile let's say um, then, then they deal with like, you know, this, the, the, the passion that they had stoked in these people turns negative and sours in a hurry and, and becomes like that much worse. Uh, and, and, and I think it's part of it is because they, they spent so long catering to those fans and telling them how great they were and how they deserve only the best efforts of everyone on staff and all uh, and just kind of like their their whole um their whole approach has has just endeared them to their fans but it's also cultivated uh this this atmosphere where, where the fans when they don't like something or when they don't think they're getting everything that they've been told they deserve 
for so long, uh, it, it gets nasty in a hurry. And I don't think like the, the, the tweets that the Techland people showed, they, I think they were abusive, but they weren't, they weren't death threats. Um, so I understand why people would have looked at them and said like, oh, it's not that big a deal if we just put this out there. Uh, but I, I, I do think that it's just, you know, like another, another drop in the ocean of, of things that are, that are making, you know, fandom and gaming, uh, just such a creepy, harmful place, uh, of late. It doesn't help that this is done to comedic effect in other areas. So Chris actually on our Slack earlier, we really did need Chris today, but um, he's looking after his son, which is fine. Um, Chris mentioned um, celebrities read mean tweets, which is on Jimmy Kimmel or Fallon. I can never remember the two are interchangeable to me, but it's where celebrities like you know a-list you know film stars and musicians read out horrific tweets that are you know vulgar horrible tweets that are made about them and then they do like some kind of you know exaggerated reaction or some kind of pithy comeback or whatever and do you know what i have to confess i have watched that i have found it funny um and yes it kind of it, it humanizes look it really kind of shows look there's a human being behind this you know behind the the tweet twitter account that you're you're targeting and shows that but like the fact that they all get like, like someone said earlier here take it in their stride it kind of makes it okay and i look back as i like, actually maybe that's not the way to handle it the other one is um i mean well there's two others um brendan we were talking on friday about um feedbackula which used to be an old GameSpot series um and i used to find that amusing until actually yeah i grew to be quite uncomfortable with how vulgar the comments are it's like why are you featuring these people why are you giving them the time of day um the only other one i can think of is um there's a comedian in the uk called dave gorman who does a show kind of taking the mick out of just general how, how modern life is in general and most of his episodes end with what he calls a found poem which is basically he does a dramatic reading of all the comments from a daily mail article and there i find it funny because you're presenting you're not taking the tweet out of context or the comment out of context you're presenting the entirety of the conversation and it is quite when presented in this way it's quite amusing to see how how ridiculous the conversations and the arguments get, how far they go from the original article he was talking about. But my point is like the fact that they're, they're kind of normalized in those kind of instances, I can see why companies like Techland think, right, well, let's try this. And I kind of agree, yeah, I agree with Brendan, obviously, I don't think it works. But I think perhaps because we're, we're particularly aware of how toxic the games community can be versus... Mm people who read the daily mail or people who like celebrities oh 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 Celeb- celebrity can be say, just like- as toxic <laughs> the, the, there is a horrible horrible culture around celebrities and i feel so sorry for them that they are asked to put up with so much and always yeah. have like a happy face about it that just like conceptually the celebrities read mean treat mean mean tweets bit is just horrifying to me I, I I think there are ways to do this in ways that push back and and kind of make it clear that this is a condemnation of inappropriate behavior. Um, but I, I also like I just I just feel really bad for anyone with any kind of profile and any kind of celebrity because it is messed up. It's true. It's true. It's messed up. Um, the thing with the celebrities being mean tweets is that, you know. Yeah thing is that that's like an individual choosing to take part in something um i'm not saying it's good i I think that's messed up too the way in which i think it 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 doesn't really stand as a comparison certainly not as a comparison to kind of make make the tech land thing seem like 
a good way to do it or the right way to do it or a clever way to do it is that those those uh, that abuse is directed not at one person who then has an autonomous decision to represent the abuse they receive in in a certain way now you know you could say that the Fallon Kimmel thing I mean there, there's that's compromised because it's also about being on a being on a fairly public platform and probably having to trade off the the, the, the discomfort you feel with the abuse you receive against the visibility you'd receive by being on the show. But like if you can just say this is an individual who receives abuse deciding to deal with their abuse in this way. The abuse directed at Techland's team is not directed at one person. That one person didn't decide. The, the way that abuse is represented in that video makes a choice on, the behalf, on behalf of dozens of people, if not hundreds of people. And I think you can say with absolute certainty that not all of those people are going to laugh it off or think it's funny. Um, there'll be plenty of people on that team who struggle with it. And their, 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 and their ability to kind of make that felt or seen or heard is massively compromised by a video like that. It's, it's a very old school way of thinking about you know, how to, to treat your employees where the customer is always right and where the product is more important than the people behind it. And in so many ways, the video games industry have been trying to move beyond, in many areas, the video games industry have been trying to move beyond that way of thinking and saying, actually, no, you know, people deserve to, you know, and it's somewhat similar to, to issues like crunch in that way that, you know, the person is not to be sacrificed at the altar of making a buck off this game. One thing that it did call to mind actually was comments made by Patrick Soderland around Battlefield when Battlefield was foregrounding, you know, female characters a bit more and there was that awful hashtag campaign, Not My Battlefield, where a bunch of mm. misogynistic trolls online decided to come out against Battlefield. And I, I found the quote um, while you were all talking. And Soderlund said, who is the EA's chief creative officer, so this is as as high-level and influential a position as you can have, really, short of the CEO itself of the company. We stand for the cause because I think those people who don't understand it, well, you have two choices. Accept it or don't buy the game. I'm fine with either. So there is more than one way of dealing with this. And yeah, I think you, you can say, oh, this is a smart way of dealing with it. But no, I would say that that way is smarter. Saying this is unacceptable. We're making a game. We're trying to do it right. We're doing it. We're trying to do it right for you. Don't treat us this way. That's perfectly fine. Um, but very, very few companies have the courage to do it because they are, they are afraid of alienating even a small handful of people that, frankly, they should be willing to take a stand against. And I think that's kind of ultimately is the danger in it, you know, that you end up empowering people that you should not really feel like you have to placate because they don't deserve it. That is all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week with the Game Developers Playlist. Uh, so tune in on Monday for that. You can find all previous podcasts, including Game Developers Playlist and Five Games Of, on the podcasting platform of your choice. And you can find more news, insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. We're going to be talking about the biggest stories from the past week across the world of uh, video games. No, I don't know why I tried something different. I don't <laughs> are know we why at I the second something. segment already? Yes, we are. <laughs> Starting well.